Hello and uh, welcome to the third part of this kind of uh, uh, series of reflections I'm doing on Nietzsche's Madman parable. I didn't know it was going to be three parts when I started. Uh, I just jumped on a few days ago to do a reflection on it because it's part of my Atheism for Lent course. But then the one session bled into a second and then I mentioned in the last session that I wanted to do something about how we live into the experience that I've been talking about. Now, if you're watching this part, which is part three, don't worry, watch part three, and then if you're interested, watch one and two, that order is fine. So either one, two, and three, or three, one, and two, will probably work equally as well. But this is where I wanna get a little bit more practical. Uh, I'll do a, a slight summary of where we've got to, um, but as I say, not very much, and then we'll get into the practice of what I call collectives of the contradiction. This is what I mentioned yesterday, right, in part two. Uh, I talked about collectives of the contradiction are cohorts or groups of people who engage in a certain type of liturgical activity that helps them embrace the chaos within life and the chaos that is life, right? Uh, that helps us um, encounter at an existential level a certain doubt, complexity and ambiguity that reverberates within reality and within thought. Right. So that's what a collective of the contradiction is. And in my work, I am arguing that church is, should be the collective of the contradiction. Now, I'm not talking about confessional churches as such. Some of them do this, but I'm kind of talking about a, a, a new type of church which is also a very old type of church, right? At Reformation, this is the work of power theology. So I'm gonna basically try to outline what I mean by collectives of the contradiction, which I think would make a nice t-shirt actually. Um, okay, not that it's about the merchandise, but hey, <laughs> I just thought it would be a nice t-shirt. Um, uh, what was I saying the last two sessions? I mean, in a nutshell, right? And by the way, I'm going to slow down my talking. We Northern Irish talk very fast. I can talk as slow as I want because this can go on for three hours and you don't have to sit and watch it all at one time. You can come back and see it again. So um, what I was saying last time is that the difference between the Nietzschean understanding and say a humanist understanding is for a humanist, one is for Nietzsche, atheism is not atheistic enough. That's what I've been kind of exploring, is that secularism, humanism and atheism can retain a type of big other. They retain a structure in which they're still seeking certainty and satisfaction in different ways. Uh, and not even consciously, but at an unconscious level. And I'm going to do a little bit more on that today, right? But for Nietzsche, the death of God um, transcends theism and atheism. It's something profoundly deeper. And it's not something that happens to theology. It is a theological event. So that's key. So instead of thinking that the death of God is the end of theology or something that happens to it, it is rather the vocation of theology. Theology is the entering into the death of God in the Nietzschean sense. And of course, Nietzsche, as I mentioned, you know, borrows this from Hegel, who gets it from Luther, who gets it from uh, his reading of uh, the New Testament, right? And particularly Paul. Right, so that's what we've done so far. This is a theological vocation. I'll tell you a story very quickly that I think grasps what this means. And uh, it's a story from back home, and it's about this farmer, right? This old guy called Seamus, right? Now, Seamus, it's during the recession, and Seamus has not got much money, so he takes a second job, right? He takes a job as a limo driver. And he basically drives around business people, celebrities, that kind of thing. Picks them up, the, uh, picks them up at the airport, brings them to their hotels. So anyway, one day Seamus gets a call from the office, says, you'll never believe it, right? The Pope is coming in for a state visit. Want you to pick him up at the airport, bring him to his hotel. So Seamus is like, fantastic, no way, I'm going to meet the Pope, right? So gets in the car, goes to the airport, waits there with a sign. Sure enough, the Pope comes out all dressed in white with the big hat. Seamus is like, hello, your holiness. Uh, you know, I'm here to take you to the hotel. Hope you had a good flight, right? Now, 
they get a you know they start to strike up a conversation as they're walking towards the car and the pope's like lets out this sigh and Seamus says what's wrong and the pope says he says I'll be honest with you Seamus I'm bored he says like I get driven everywhere I get flown everywhere I don't have to lift a finger it might sound great to you but honestly it just becomes tedious after a while and he says you know what I'd love to drive can I drive to the hotel give me something to do so Seamus says, absolutely. So the Pope jumps into the, the front seat and Seamus thinks, this is perfect. I'll jump in the back, pour himself a little whiskey, right? So he gets in the back, pours himself a whiskey. Anyway, the Pope's driving to the hotel, but he's such a bad driver because he doesn't drive very much. He's all over the road, you know? So blue lights appear, police pull him over, Garda get out, walk to the, the limo, window goes down. And the, the Garda, the, the Irish police, starts to write a ticket and then says, listen, give me one second, I've got to go back to the police car. So he goes back to the police car and he calls up his, uh, his office, right, the police office, and says, he says, you'll never guess who I just pulled over for driving badly. And the people at the dispatch say, like, you know, who, well, like some big, some big politician. They're like, no, 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 bigger than that, much bigger than that. They're like, bigger than that, like some pop star. Did you get Bono or something? He's gone, oh, much bigger than Bono. And they're like, uh, okay, who is it? And then he says, listen, I'll be honest with you. I've got no idea, but the guy has got the Pope for a chauffeur, right? Now that is the Christological meaning in a nutshell, right? The, the, the police officer kind of in a creative misinterpretation sees the truth. Namely, the sacred is in the place of the profane. The profane takes the place of the sacred, right? That is the meaning of the incarnation. It is this radical coincidence of opposites in which one is found in the other. And now that's been what I've been exploring, this pursuit into the profane, which weirdly brings you to the side of the sacred, right? Now, what I want to look at is, is how, we, um, how we do that in practice. What does that look like in community? And there's two ways that that plays out. And I'm not gonna be able to look at both of them, so I'm gonna look at one of them. One of them I call transformance art, and one of them I call decentering practices, right? And I'm gonna kind of reference what those means. I got the term transformance art from someone who was involved in the collective I was part of called Icon, a guy called Chris Fry, and decentering practices, um, uh, uh, I don't know. I think that's mine. I'm not sure. Um, but being inspired by other people. Right. So what does it mean? Well, first of all, again, what I have been looking at in the last two sessions is this idea that uh, Nietzsche, right, this has been one of the core ideas, is Nietzsche does not have some secular humanist telling some religious madman that God is dead. Nietzsche turns it around. It's a religious madman who's telling the secular humanists that God is dead. And what that means is Nietzsche is saying that religion operates still within the secular world. So I want to give you an example of what that means. And this is something I did about, it must have been four or five years ago back in Belfast, uh, where I'm from. Uh, I, I took the idea from Darren Brown, right? So I kind of adapted something that he did. Uh, what I did is I was speaking to uh, basically mostly a secular group, right? Like it was a group of about, I think, 60 or 70 people. And uh, it was on the topic of, I can't remember the topic, something to do with this kind of material. And what I did at the beginning, very simply, was I said, okay, who does not believe in God in the room, right? Lots of hands go up, like 90% of the hands go up, right? Who here doesn't believe in God? demons or devils or angels or fairies or any of that stuff again the hands go up so i'm going like okay you know bear with me for a second i hate hands going up i don't like that but i'm going like bear with me for a second okay who here doesn't believe in magical thinking right they're kind of you know kind of get rid of all of that kind of superstitious thought again 90 percent of the hands go up because this isn't los angeles right this is this is northern ireland so then I, I asked people, I said, uh, get a picture of someone you love onto your mobile phone, right? So just pick a picture of someone you love, right? And I uh, waited for 30 seconds while people did that. And then I took out of my jacket pocket an envelope 
and I opened the envelope and I said, right, what I've got here, it's a, it's a, it's a satanic prayer um, that was written, I think it was in the 1500s. And it's this satanic kind of rite that you speak uh, over somebody and basically it's a way of cursing them, right? Making sure bad things befall them. And what you need to do when you're reciting this prayer is you have to either have something that belongs to the person you're reciting it over, or you have to intentionally be thinking of them as you say it, right? So hence, you've got, you know, the picture of someone on your phone. And I said, could somebody just come up and say the satanic prayer over the person on their phone? And nobody moves. Nobody moves. And I'm like, okay, okay, like, well, like, I'm not the one who told you whether you believed in magical thinking or demons or angels or gods. I asked you and you all said no. So like, what, what's the harm in just saying this, right? Again, nobody moves. And I even said to my friend at the back, who was putting the, the thing on, who's the most kind of like, uh, you know, uninterested in religious pers religion person you could imagine. And I said, will you do it? And he said, no way. And I asked him, I said, like, why, why not? And I thought he was going to say, because my wife would kill me if she heard that I did that, right? You know, with speaking some curse over his kids. Uh, but he didn't. He said, um, he says, oh, I just don't feel comfortable. You know, something might happen. And I said, well, say it over me, right? Because like, I don't even know if he likes me. He's my one of my best mates. But he's <laughs> like, go on, I go, say it over me. I don't mind. He's like, no, 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 no. And uh, if I'd asked him in the pub the night before, if saying some silly thing that I printed off the internet and changed a few words to make it sound more sinister, if that could have any effect, he would have laughed. But all of a sudden, there's this deep discomfort. So what I said, I mean, the point of my talk was going like, you people will be so easy to convert. So like, you all think that you're, that you're over religion, but no, you're not. It's all in there unconsciously. And all I have to do, because I used to do this when I was young, right, is um, I don't have to outsmart you and make you kind of think that God exists or anything, but I just have to make you anxious and nervous and all of this stuff that's already there will bubble up to the surface again, right? All these things that you think you've got beyond, they're all there um, in an unconscious level. Now, First of all, and this is just an aside, but somebody might turn around and go, oh yeah, so all these people secretly believe in God. Well, not really. They are all secretly caught up in superstition, right? And superstition has always been rejected by religion. I don't think there's one intelligent religious person I know who thinks that if you read some, something off the internet while thinking about a loved one, God will just turn around and say, Oh yeah, I'm going to make them get cancer because of that, right? It's a, it's a, what Tillich calls a superstitious notion of God. And for Tillich, religion is designed, theology is designed to protect you from superstition and scientism, right? Those are the two, the two dangers. And uh, we won't go into scientism for now, but, but um, superstition is, it's a silly notion that uh, say no, no thoughtful religious person is going to, kind of, as I think that their God is going to destroy someone's family because they took part in this silly little ritual, right? So, but, but yet everybody, in fact, there's a, there's a series of studies that were done, um, I think this is about 10 years ago now, and it was interesting that they found there was no difference uh, in people, in secular people or people who didn't believe in God and people who did believe in God, there was no difference in the level of discomfort that an act like that produced, right? So they did all of these things like where they would uh, get you to say, I hope my, you know, my partner dies in an accident or something, right? And everybody, it didn't matter uh, whether you were quote unquote in a, in a theist or atheist, you had equally difficult time saying these things, even when it came to talking about God. This is, um, and say, I'm not talking about whether or not that's true. Like you can set that aside. Like if I did it in LA, there's people I know who do believe that if you talk, you know, nastily to water, you can change its molecular structure, right? Gwyneth Paltrow or whatever, you know. <laughs> so if I'm talking about people who literally they go, I don't believe in this stuff at all, and yet they do. Now, interestingly, there was only one person in the room who was prepared to do it, and she was very interesting. Um, and if someone remembers, ask me the question at the end and I'll tell you what happened, right? 
So the point being is that people can think that they're freed from magical thinking and freed from superstition. When they're not, they're completely bound up in it. And, and when life gets anxious and they, their anxieties come up, they start to get into all sorts of magical thinking. I talked about toilet roll buying or whatever, but it doesn't, can be anything like st standing on the cracks, having a woolly hat to go to sleep, turning the light on and off three times before you leave the house, whatever it is, right? Obsessive compulsive rituals um, that somehow uh, protect you from a certain anxiety. So the question is, how does one free oneself from this kind of weirdly superstitious and magical thinking uh, that we've been looking at in the previous two sessions, the Nietzschean idea of the death of God as the canonic event, the theological vocation in which you so go into the profane that you're freed from superstition entirely and scientism, which is not what this is about, right? But superstition. Um, fully entering into a place where you're able to um, be free to basically I think I said it, I don't know if I said it but it's the movement from the idea of God as an object that you love to God as the reality you discover in the act of love itself so you move to what's called the collective of the Holy Ghost where people live together in love fully giving themselves to each other and in that there is some sort of sacred dimension but in that profane act, right? This is what Bonhoeffer talked about at Letters and Papers from Prison. Um, so how, how do we get there, if we want to get there, right? How do we get there? Uh, what is the process? And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and then I want to give you one concrete example of how it looks. And that'll probably be enough for today, I guess. So uh, the theory is this, right? Uh, Freud uh, noticed something very, very interesting, right? He noticed that uh, someone, someone's parents can die, right? They say their father, their father can die, but their father remains alive in their being, in their unconscious. In other words, if you've been trying to impress your parents all your life, right? <laughs> when they die, do you think you're now freed from having to impress them? Freud noticed that no, the death of the literal mother and father doesn't do anything necessarily to release you from the desire to impress them or for the desire to rebel against them, right? Um, that still remains. So your mother and father have died in reality and yet they still are alive in terms of their dictating your activity without you even realizing it. Maybe you're taking a certain job because you think that they will be impressed by it or you're taking a certain job because you think they'll hate it, right? Or go out with a certain person because you think they'd approve or go out with a certain person because you think they would despise it, right? Whatever it is, the, 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 the parent continues to live after they've died in the sense of they remain a force that you define yourself for and against, right? Now, part of growing up is about transitioning to kind of the death of the parent. And the death of the parent means that even when they're alive, their influence, you free yourself from them at a certain point and you become an individual and go into the world, right? But we're not talking about that. So we're talking about this early stage where you're very dictated, your whole life is dictated by your relationship with your parents. And then as they say, they die, but they remain alive within you. So say you go to a therapist because you find yourself always doing things you don't want to do, going out with people you don't want to go out with, taking jobs you don't want to do. You always find yourself not desiring what you desire. You're in conflict with your own self, right? And that part of yourself is the other seemingly this view of the other that's looking at you, demanding certain things from you. So what happens in the analytic setting, right? Very briefly, and to kind of, to simplify it, let's talk about three different phases of analysis. So the first phase of analysis is you sit down with this person who's a professional, just like any other professional, and you look at them and you see them as a person just like you. And you may like them or dislike them. You may want to win their approval or not. But they are just a person like yourself, right? 
They eat like you, they have fears like you, they have friends like you, they have family issues just like you. You can talk about that as the imaginary register, right? So you're just relating to the analyst as a person, even a person who has an expertise. But analysis doesn't really kick off at that point. And if you don't get beyond that point, analysis can't really get going. So the second stage, which you kind of don't really notice, is when you enter into what's called the symbolic register. And this is where you start to relate to your analyst like your parents, right? You don't even kind of realize it, but you start to somehow look at them in the way that you look at your parents. And weirdly, you see your therapist looking at you the way that you think unconsciously your parents look at you. So you might, for example, say, oh, I didn't want to tell you about this. I'm really embarrassed. I went out and got really drunk yesterday, got like absolutely wasted two days, had arguments with everybody and all of that. And I just, I didn't want to tell you. Why don't you want to tell the therapist? Why are you embarrassed, right? There's a way in which you might not want to tell the therapist because you don't want to tell your partner or you don't want to tell your parents, something like that. And now you're relating to them symbolically. So they're like, like a screen upon which you start to project things from inside of you, but also transfer other relationships into that relationship. So transference is starting to happen. Transference is you take these earlier relationships and you place them into the analyst. Now this is important, but the real meat is when you get to the third position. And the third position is called the register of the real. And in a nutshell, this is when the analyst isn't just the screen upon which you project all of this stuff, but they anchor themselves into your desire. And it's like when you start to dream about your analyst, you start to, they start, you daydream about them, they start to kind of enter into your psychic reality. And you wake up and you have a dream and is it your father or your analyst or your mother or your analyst? And there's a weird kind of like interconnection. Now at that point, real change can happen because the analyst is in a sense anchored themselves into your unconscious. Now then, what happens? Well, when you start projecting onto the analyst, you're expecting them to think of you in a certain way. So you're saying, I didn't want to tell you that I was drunk for two days, just absolutely wasted, didn't do any work, right? Didn't want to tell you. Well, the analyst's response is not, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that, right? Um, the analyst is mute, is impotent really, as at, the, at most goes, ah, oh. you know, and maybe, maybe asks one question, maybe says, oh, why did you not want to tell me? Right, that's it, right? some very minor thing of, or just even, oh, go on, right? So in other words, the analyst doesn't respond in the way that you imagine they should because you're imagining your, your parental response, right? Now, when they're anchored in your unconscious, there's a weird way in which you want them to enact that, right? So Lacan talks about the, the, the one thing, the one temptation the analyst should resist is the temptation to give the analyze and what they want, which is the patient, right? The client. The client wants you to act in the way, to repeat repetitions, to kind of act in the way that they expect you to act. They're projecting their inner parents onto you, expecting and even demanding that you chide them or you tell them it's going to be okay you know you treat them in a very maternal way or you treat them in a kind of more paternal way right whatever it is that they're working themselves through but the analyst refuses to give you what you want right they remain kind of like a screen and they just keep poking and prodding now when they are anchored within you right what happens is the, the parent begins to die inside you, right? So the parent has died physically maybe, right? But still remains alive here. Now the parent is dying here because I've put the parent out onto you and the parent is acting in an impotent way, not acting the way I expect, not really doing anything, just kind of getting me to think more about myself. 
And so the death of the parent happens at an internal level. And then finally, you might be able to leave the, the analytic session more, at least less in conflict with your own desires, right? More at peace with that dimension of yourself. Now that, well, and by the way, that also means your parents can be alive in reality and dead psychically. So why am I saying this? Well, this is a radical theology. Well, first of all, right, let's talk about conservative confessional religion, evangelical Christianity, for example. What is, what is the, the liturgical structure? What is the church designed to do? Well, you know, in one way, it is a place where you affirm a certain set of beliefs about yourself and the world and the absolute, right? It's a, it's a place where you learn the right things and you also praise that and communicate with that, right? So the liturgy is designed to maintain a certain belief. And I, I talked about it in one of the other sessions that it's, it's not necessarily that people believe it, they just enact, enact the belief. Uh, then within a progressive or liberal liturgy, uh, it's not about having the right beliefs, about, at least metaphysically, but, it's, it, but you engage in a liturgy in which you still enact the superstitious God. So in the, in the conservative session, you have the superstitious God, what Bonhoeffer calls a deus ex machina, right? Who's this anthropomorphized being, right? Who's, who's acting in certain ways. In the progressive sense, you get rid of the anthropomorphic God in your thinking, but you retain it in the, this, the hymns that you sing, in the prayers that you pray, in the sermons that you hear, right? And so although, just like a kid, I use the example from Shizeker, a kid has a security blanket and is in a room full of people, and they, they know they're in a room full of people, but as long as they have the blanket, they don't feel the, the, the anxiety of that belief. But when they get the security blanket taken away from them, they feel the anxiety of being in a room full of people. In the same way, you can embrace within, say, a liberal church, um, all of this questioning about the nature of reality. But you've got a type of liturgical structure that helps you avoid the death of God at a subjective level. So one is helping you kind of like avoid the death of God at the level of belief the other at a more existential level. Now, a radical liturgy is different from that. A radical liturgy is designed precisely to move you into that experience more deeply. So to take an example of the kid again, with the security blanket, it might be like the parent taking the security blanket away to put it in the washing machine, right? To kind of like get the child to start moving away from that security blanket, right? There are, there are rituals in our lives that help us avoid the chaos of life and there are rituals that help us enter into it. And a radical liturgy, a collective of the contradiction, is a liturgical structure that is designed through music and word and, and activity to draw you into that experience. Um, now what happens is the liturgy is similar to the analyst, right? When you go into the, the church, at first, the people who are at the front doing stuff, they're just people like you. They're regular people with regular problems like yourself. But very gradually, or maybe instantly, you start to treat them as the personification of God. You transfer your notion of the absolute onto the liturgical structure. You know, you don't know you're doing it, right? It's irrelevant, but you do it. That's why a minister who... Uh, if you're in the car and a minister drives past and the cloak and the collar and they tell you to fuck off because you nearly cut them off, it's more, it's more jarring because it's a minister, because they're, they're a symbolic figure. It's not like them telling you to piss off, it's, it's God, right? So there's a, there's a symbolic dimension. You are projecting onto the liturgy your internal notion of the absolute. Whether or not one believes in God doesn't matter, right? Now then, at this point, uh, the temptation that the priest has to resist is to give the congregation what they want, which is they want to have that transference returned to them in the same way. So the God of the superstitious God, they, they expect that to be mirrored in the liturgical structure. And sadly, I would argue within the confessional church, this is what happens. The confessional structure, whether conservative or liberal, reflects back 
the, uh, this deus ex machina superstitious notion of the absolute. This is the difference with radical theology. Radical theology resists that temptation. And now when the congregation gets to the point where they engage in the register of the real, where the liturgical structure isn't just where they transfer their relationship onto, of, of God onto the, the structure, but where that structure has a kind of libidinal attachment to their subjectivity. Then, when the liturgy does not give them back the deus ex machina, but rather undergoes the death of God, that then transforms the, the person's inner experience of the absolute itself. What does that mean? Well, basically, of course, it means what we've looked at, which is you do the kenosis, right? You look at the doubt, the unknowing, the complexity. You look at like people's experience of, the, of like not feeling uh, complete and feeling uncertain and feeling anxious about their life, right? You allow a space for that to come to the surface and to be seen. And then you do the redoubled kenosis that we talked about, which is then you see that that doubt, complexity, ambiguity, unknowing, and alienation is within the absolute itself in the cross, right? So that's a stage two. Stage three is resurrection. So stage two is you experience that. And then stage three is where you then, by, by going into that experience, you get to the epoch of the Holy Ghost, where in love, you, re you recover the sacred that you lost. So the sacred is no longer an object that you grasp, but rather the depth dimension of objects in the world. So that's the movement, right? By the way, you see this in the Eucharist. The sacred is there in the bread and wine. It disappears in your body, right? The death of God. And then you are the body of God in the world, the third stage, where you, where you love one another, there the truth is. Um, this is a movement from the pursuit of happiness into the experience of joy and the pursuit of um, uh, certainty into the experience of truth, right? So the pursuit of happiness is you're always frenetically looking for the thing that will make you whole and complete, will get rid of the lack. Joy is a type of pleasure you get in being able to tarry with that lack. And from, from the desire for certainty and the truth is certainty is you want to have the answer of the universe in a totalizing way. And truth is where you encounter the inherent antagonism that is within reality, right? So that is the role of the community. And every service, so the church, the, the church isn't there for community. It's not there to be nice to people. It's not there to look after your kids. It's not there to give moral instruction. It can do all of those things maybe, but its main reason for being is to liturgically enact the canonic event, which means you free yourself from the frenetic pursuit of something that will make you whole and complete. In other words, it's great to live in a community where you're free to pursue what will make you happy, but the church is the place where you're freed from the pursuit of what will make you happy, right? You're freed from that frenetic drive. The, it's the desert and the oasis of life, right? That, that dry, silent space that frees you from the craziness of the, of the, um, the super injunction to enjoy. Um, okay, oh yeah, so a practical thing. Here's one example of how it looks, right? Uh, in, in what's called transformance art. These are uh, weekly or monthly kind of um, experiences in which you kind of undergo this in the liturgy. So one example is a, a, a gathering that I was part of called Sins of the Father. And we did it in a place called the Menagerie Bar. We also did it at um, Greenbelt Festival. But in the Menagerie Bar, it was late at night, it was raining and dark outside and cold outside. And then you walked into the bar, which the bar itself just looks like a derelict building. But you go down the stairs and you go into this quite warm bar. And in it, there's a DJ and he's playing some music. And over the music, you hear the words, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was in prison, did you visit me? And so these words are just echoing around. And you come in and you get a drink and you sit down, but also you notice that there are hundreds of broken wine glasses all around the bar. We probably wouldn't pass health and safety for this, right? So lots of broken wine glasses on the tables. And at a certain point, 
uh, I get up and tell a parable. And I say, at the end of days, all of humanity are called to stand at the judgment seat. They look at God and then they turn to the book of life. The book of life is opened and humanity look to see if God's name is in it. And they say to God in one voice, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you give me something to eat? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? And after that, uh, everyone has, there's also little scraps of paper around. And over the course of the night, we ask people to write down the times when God had sinned against them. And we asked them to write them down. And then if they didn't X them, we would read them. And when we read them, we would put them into a fire that would send up an aroma into heaven, right? And people wrote very honest things. It wasn't things like I, stu- I, you know, I stubbed my toe or something. It was, I, I worked all my life and lost all of my savings. Uh, I, I've got a terminal disease. Um, I'm estranged from my family, from my children. Me and my partner are not speaking. Uh, the person that I loved uh, is with somebody else, right? Really crazy things. And what that does, by the way, is it sensitizes you to the incredible struggles within the room. So it can kind of bind together social fabric. So you're starting to go, oh my goodness, look at all of the things that are going on just in this room of 50 or 60 people, right? And then, the ash of, uh, oh yeah, well, no, it wasn't that. Um, it was, we all, we, at the end, we gave everyone a Tamagotchi. But during it, Padraig Otuma did some poetry. We did a reading from a book, Yossel Rakover Talks to God. And what we did is we created a space where you could articulate the frustrations and the anger and the struggles you have with reality itself. Right, just with your place in life, to put that down in symbolic form, to do that as a community. But the liturgical structure contained it. The liturgical structure encouraged it. Now, any church could do that, right? But what they would tend to do at the end is then say, but that's not really God, or but it'll be okay in the end, either in this life or in the next life. In other words, bring the anxiety level up and then push it down. But the liturgical structure that we used within ICON was just to keep that, but to sacralize the profanity. Now you do that once and it doesn't do very much, but if you engage in a regular activity once a week or once a month, that every time will look different to that, but we'll be doing and acting the same kind of thing. What you find is you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what we try to always avoid is the truth, right? We always try to push down the truth of our desires, the truth of who we are, the truth of our beliefs. We, most of our consciousness is an attempt to hide from us, hide us from what we believe. That's why I always find it so weird when people say, what do you believe? I'm like, how would I know what I believe? <laughs> My consciousness is designed to protect me from what I believe, right? Um, so we push all that stuff down, but in that space, you can, you can come to know the truth in a place that contains that and allows that to be. And you realize that actually by bringing that stuff to the light of day, it doesn't destroy you. It actually provides a way for you to find a likeness to enter into a different modality of being, what Nietzsche called a higher stage of history, right? That is the the liturgical activity of parotheology, kind of in a nutshell. I have lots of examples of it. In my books, I've written like 20 or so different gatherings, like Sins of the Father, that are different types of this. And, um, you know, if you're looking to do that kind of stuff, uh, you know, you can find those in that. Uh, I also am going to set up some uh, supervision groups to kind of help people who want to do this kind of stuff. But the point being that the service itself is designed not to get you to continue to believe in the deus ex machina, nor is it to get you to continue to liturgically, symbolically enact the deus ex machina. Rather, radical liturgy is designed to help you enter into a space where you're, you're beyond that intellectually. Not even intellectually, it doesn't matter, that's not the important bit, but existentially you experience that loss. And the loss, when you go into it, becomes the the finding right uh, there's one time we used the song amazing grace but changed the lyrics to i once was found and now i'm lost 
could see and now I'm blind, right? Because that's a dialectic move, right? If in order to find your life, you lose it. You go into the darkness to find the light. You go into the profane to discover the sacred, right? Um, is there anything else I want to say about that? Uh, no, okay, I'll look to see if there are any questions. Um, there's other things I was thinking about, but they're all out of my head. So let's see if there's any good questions. Uh, da -da -da. Bear with me. Um, so Dorian says, are there secular ways that kill this pursuit of safety, joy, and certainty? Absolutely. So what I'm talking about is um, two types of rituals, and you find them everywhere in sacred and secular form. And I did mention this in one of the previous seminars, is that there, there are rituals that help us avoid going into the darkness and the suffering, pop music, getting drunk, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever, right? Um, and then there's rituals that can help us go into it, which is like, uh, you know, singer songwriters, poets, uh, having a drink with friends, right? So, uh, but one of the major rituals that can help you go into this is of course the couch, the, the rituals of psychoanalysis that are designed to provide enough containment for you to go into those difficult and dark places. Now, the thing is, and this is why I've sent this to Jameson Webster, she was at my Wake Festival, because um, Jameson Webster is a psychoanalyst and she's, uh, she was talking about her work. And, you know, she was kind of like, you know, we were talking about this work of power of theology and, and one of the things about it was how, how possible is it to actually undergo what I'm talking about, right? She says, you know, says in my lifetime, maybe I'll help two dozen people, right? That's what a psychoanalyst can do because you're working with one person over the space of three years, five years, sometimes more. So this project that I'm doing can sound just hopelessly naive. But the response, the reason why I believe in it is because, right, the church has a delivery mechanism. It has this perfect structure, right? It has this, not only do I think that this is um, uh, a, a reading of Christianity that I think is right, right? The Hegelian reading. But also the church has a structure where people go every week, sometimes twice a week or three times a week, just like in therapy, but all their lives, right? They bring their kids up. And that's what it requires. You can't do this intellectually. You can't do it as a one-off. You need to have a community where one is you're invited into this experience and then where you are invited to remain faithful to this experience and then where you're invited to help other people go through that experience. So those three things require such a long period of time, right? So this might take three years. And then remaining faithful takes your whole life. And then helping other people go through it and learning how to do that takes a number of years. But there's a whole structure that's already in place. So all you need to do is have a reformation. <laughs> that's all you need, right? Where you restructure this, this institution that's already there. And then you can influence the lives of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, and millions of people, right? Who are, who are part of that. That's why I'm so into it. So there are other ways of doing it. And you know, I mentioned the couch, that's for the individual, but that's expensive. And, and you know, not everyone can afford to do psychoanalysis. And it's also not necessary, right? You don't need to go through it. So Tillich had this good way of describing the difference between the priest and the psychoanalyst, right? The psychoanalyst deals primarily with your uh, real traumas that have happened to you and to nobody else, right? So the analyst goes, right, you have certain relationships and certain issues. The analyst starts with them, so that's called the ontic. And then the analyst helps you connect your individual struggles to something about the nature of reality itself, right? So you realize that the contradictions that are within you ultimately reflect, reflect the contradictions that, that, that is life and reality itself. The priest starts here at what's called the ontological level. They start by not looking at your individual problems, right? But they start by showing how the absolute itself is riven with contradiction. And then as you become comfortable with that and you enter into that, that begins to positively impact your individual traumas. The trauma that is life and the traumas that happen to you within life, right? And 
that's and so there are those those uh, uh, you know the, the psychoanalytic techniques I think are you could call secular liturgies. Um, I'm interested in the the priest, and uh, I don't think there's very many structures that do that. Actually, don't know if there's any. Um, you know, if you go to a concert of a great like Bob Dylan concert or something, you can have an experience of that, but it's kind of a one-off experience. What I'm talking about is a weekly experience where you enter the contradiction. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, John says, does loyalty to the event come into this? Oh yeah, I probably just answered that in sense of yes, that's that's what I was calling fidelity to the event. Hundred percent is, it's not enough to experience the freedom from this frenetic pursuit of certainty and satisfaction, there is, I think, a certain um, fidelity to it or loyalty to it. And that's the, that's the ongoing work, right? That's the on- and that's why I think having an ongoing community is, is, what's, is what's important, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, uh, thank you. Reminder to tell the story of the person who's willing to read the internet thingy you talked about. Yes, uh, the internet thingy, I like that. Um, so the woman who wanted to do it in the end, she got up uh, and um, even I felt a bit awkward. So I think I got her to do it over me, I think in the end. So I like, yeah, do it over me. But I, afterwards I went down and chatted with her and she said that she said she basically, she is susceptible to religion. She said like, I know I fall for it all. She says, I've been through about three or four religions. She says, I am always looking for the thing that will work. And she said, I realized that this was for me an opportunity to try to break that. Because there's basically she was going, there's something in me that where there's a certain level of anxiety and I'm always looking for the thing that will fix it whether it's drugs, sex, religion, you know, whether she said she went through the Hare Krishnas, Christianity, she did something else, and always looking for the thing. And so it was really, I actually felt quite relieved. It was kind of interesting. I was going like, oh yeah, for her, this was, and to bring back the question that was asked just earlier there, this was for her a ritual that, you know, wouldn't have broken it in and of itself, but it was a ritual that was, that she found might be helpful in making her less susceptible to always looking for the next thing that we'll save. Because ultimately the community of contradiction is salvation, but salvation from salvation, right? It is conversion, but it's conversion from the need to convert, right? So religious salvation is certainty and satisfaction, right? Relig- uh, salvation is you, you, you become whole and complete, now you're in the next life, right? And conversion is you move into a system that has the right answer. Con- salvation from salvation is a more profound move because it is a, a fundamental transformation in how you desire and how you interact with the world in which you do not need salvation. And conversion from conversion means you may move to a different worldview, but but ultimately you, you experience a type of uh, uh, reverberation within all worldviews that make them not at one with themselves. So you're less susceptible to thinking that any guru or utopia exists. That's what, I, that's what I mean by the non-membership course. So I used to run a thing called the non-membership course. And it was designed to help you become a member of a community in which you're not a member, right? It's because we, this, is what, this is what I mean by radical liturgy. Radical liturgy is a liturgy that frees you from a liturgy that will fix everything. <laughs> it's, it's part, you know, so you need a community to become an individual. It's like a Kierkegaardian idea, but Kierkegaard didn't see any rule for the institution. This is going like, no, to be an individual, you kind of need community, but you need a community that you kind of reject, that you feel yourself apart from. Um, so anyway, uh, maybe one more, and then we'll let you go. Um, okay, this is from WEFA. Uh, could one go one step further from the, to quote, only genuine way to atheism is Christianity, unquote, to the genuine way, to the genuine way, to the, uh, sorry, let me read this. You've got the word genuine a few times. So could one go one step further from the notion of the only genuine way to atheism is Christianity to the only genuine way to genuine Christianity is genuine atheism? Okay, <laughs> okay. That's, that's good. Let me see what you're saying. So, the only genuine way to genuine Christianity is genuine atheism. 
I see what you're saying. I think by putting the word genuine in, are you saying that it, it avoids misunderstanding? Like, because when people hear the word atheism, they think of a certain thing, uh, which is not what I'm talking about. So at least when you put the word genuine atheism is, it at least gets people to go, okay, so what, is, what, are, what are they talking about? Because they're making a distinction between atheism and genuine atheism. So yeah, if you're saying that, that's, that's good. Because whenever someone like Lacan says, basically only a priest can be an atheist, what he's referencing really is like this Nietzschean idea that I've just looked at over the last three days. Um, the idea that only a priest can be a true atheist is basically Lacan saying there is a theological dimension to this experience of the loss of God. And it's not intellectual. That's key, right? Because when you think of atheism in its normal sense, you're thinking about not believing that there is a metaphysical God, right? In its extreme form. Whereas on the cross, Christ doesn't disbelieve in God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the loss of God. So the funny thing about this is you can be a theist or an atheist in the paratheological community, right? Um, it's just you undergo the canonic event of the crucifixion. And that means it's different from, say, yeah, the, the way we think of atheism in its, in its normal form. That's why the first time someone hears only a priest can be a true atheist, you're like, what does that mean? And it's only after you've taken this three-hour journey that you've been on with me, if you've done all three things, and we're not even going that deep, but you go on this three-hour journey that you start to go, oh, okay, what we're talking about here is not an intellectual disbelief in a god or the gods, because who cares about that? That's, that's going to be different, different cultures and times and all of that, and Bonhoeffer himself is going like, that's... That's, that's neither here nor there. That's a contingent thing. This relies on a whole pile of contingent factors. What's the necessary thing? The necessary thing is the ongoing move deeper and deeper into the canonic self-emptying. That's, that's, that's the kind of, that's what remains. That's why, that's why, and this is how I interpret Bonhoeffer. <laughs> that's why later Bonhoeffer basically says, and this is why I disagree with the scholars who say that later Bonhoeffer is just early Bonhoeffer said differently. Bonhoeffer looks like he's having a fundamental change here, where he's saying that religious Christianity, and by that he means belief in God as the deus ex machina, the God who explains the objective world, the subjective world, etc. Um, uh, that, that, that's just contingent. Yeah, that was a stage. That was a stage, and that was an important stage, but that was just a stage. That's not necessary. And this is just like circumcision. Right? At one stage that was necessary for salvation and thank God no longer is, right? You know, it's a it's a, it's a moment. And he says, so so the next reformation again is just taking away another contingency. And the contingency is is that stage and of that type of belief. But then we get to something much more essential and necessary, which is, oh yeah, Christianity has always been right through, and, and I'll do a seminar on this at some stage. Um, you can look through, right through the Hebrew scriptures, into the Christian scriptures, this type of canonic movement that then eventually is redoubled in the crucifixion that leads to the Holy Ghost, right? You can see that structure and suddenly you go, why did I never see that before? My goodness, I've read this text hundreds of times. I never saw it before. Just like people after Luther said, oh my goodness, all about grace. How come I never saw that before? It's, it's throughout the whole thing, right? So that's, that's kind of the movement. Anyway, I hope... That was of interest to you in the last uh, this this like little three part seminar because um, uh, was uh, a way of forgetting the craziness of the moment, and um, I'll uh, I'm going to do a few more of these. Uh, I might I'll probably do a few just for my patrons next because uh, you're my patrons and you allow me to do this financially, so I really appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, I want to do more more YouTube lives. So thank you so much for uh, for clicking in. I really appreciate it. And, uh,